Hello, I'm Tiffany Parks, and this is A Bittersweet Moment with Katie Sewell. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell, and this is your midweek bittersweet moment. Now, on Monday, we talked about journaling. Well, we talked about a lot of things, but one of the things we talked about was journaling. What to do with your journals, what you write down in your journals, whether you journal at all. And that conversation made me go looking for forgotten journals or loosely remembered journals. And also for one that I referred to, a diary where I jokingly said I recorded what birds were at a particular park. If you haven't heard Monday's episode yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to that larger discussion first, and then come listen to this. I'm just going to read you a few entries, hopefully as both entertainment and also perhaps inspiration. But, you know, take from it what you will. First, I wanted to go back and find that diary, that one where I talk about the birds to see if that memory was actually a real thing. And let me tell you, it is. There's other stuff in here, but there's a lot of bird talk. <laughs> now, this is a diary. It's a light pink color. It has a lock on it. The lock is covered in rust. And it was started when I was around the age of 11. So I remembered that I had written about the birds, but I did not remember that I was writing about the birds while sort of writing around other things. Specifically, this section comes after a friend of mine, my best friend at the time, Allie, had come for a visit and had then flown home back to her state of Minnesota while I was living in Seattle. And here is this entry from January, some 34 years ago. While Allie was here, we would often walk down to Shore Club. Shore Club is a club that people don't go to in the winter. We found that there are lots of ducks, geese, and seagulls. Though it's hard to explain, the ducks and other birds seemed to beg for food. That's another thing I love about 11-year-old writing. What's hard to explain is actually extremely easy to explain. <laughs> the birds seemed to beg for food. When we did bring food, all the birds gathered around us. At that park, we talked and had a good time. Today, after Allie had gone home, I walked down to the park. Without Allie, it was lonely. No duck or any other bird was in sight. So I threw some bread on the ground. And by the time I left the park, many birds had circled around me. Most of them were seagulls. While I was there, I think about many things. Although I miss Allie, we had more fun than I ever had for a long time. We laughed and enjoyed each other's company. I can't wait to see her again. And then just a few days later, on January 7th, here I am at the Shore Club again. I am all alone, but I am no longer lonely. Six ducks came to eat my bread, and so did 21 seagulls. I think I like the ducks more, because they trust me. But I like the seagulls also. They have voices that are high-pitched and can be heard far away. Every time I come to feed these birds, I always wish I had more food to give. 
When I come here, I'm lost in a world that seems so different from normal life. Here, animals gather around you and come so close, and yet they don't act different than they would every day. Unlike humans, animals don't act different when they are around other animals of their kind. I guess what I'm trying to say is, the animals are always themselves. <laughs> I will leave this diary there. I think this goes to that point that Tiffany was making, however, that when you keep a journal or a diary, you might remember some things that you wrote in there. Like, I might remember that I spent page after page after page documenting what birds were at the shore club that winter, but I would have lost the tone of this 11-year-old's voice, and I also would have forgotten those kind of weird, somewhat poignant thoughts about the animals always being themselves, of a young person trying to put together who they are. Before I leave this, I want to read just one other thing that I thought would be kind of a tickle, just given that Tiffany Parks is my co-host. This is from almost a year later. I am in the eighth grade now, and I haven't written for such a long time. I had almost forgotten I had a diary. During the first quarter, I was in a play called Snow White. It was very fun to be in. In it was my friend Tiffany Parks, who I still see even though we don't go to the same school. We write each other very long letters. One she wrote was 105 pages long. All right, so we're going to leave that there and move on. I'm not going to read from every journal I've ever done. This is the last one. But I think it gets to another point that I think is worth thinking about when you decide whether or not you want a journal. One of the things I really like to keep a journal for is when I go on a trip. I would say that consistently when I go somewhere new is the most likely time that I will buy some sort of new journal and start writing things in it. And oftentimes I write just observations, things that happened that I don't want to forget. So the rest of what I'm going to read to you is from a journal that I kept in April of 2010 when I was visiting South Africa. And a lot of things that I write in here are just snapshots of information, things that I want to remember that I might otherwise forget. And here's an example. Singing. It's the first thing I hear at the airport. A girl mops the bathroom, all the while singing beautifully and loudly, muffled only by the electric hand dryers, not the coming and going of weary travelers. It was to be the beginning of many songs to come. Before dinner and after, all the guests gather together to sing in harmony. The songs lead into prayer and into eating and into good night wishes. Tiffany mentioned that she writes things down in part to remember them because so many memories are lost. Things that we think that we'll remember forever, we don't. We don't remember forever. And she said that sometimes we remember things because they become a story that we tell. And that becomes the memory itself. And the stories that we don't tell can be the ones that vanish. But with that in mind, and I'm trying to find the page here as I talk, I found this one little passage about a story I do tell. In fact, a story I have told on the show 
about what it was like to be inside of a shark cage in Shark Alley, the area off of South Africa where there's a very high concentration of great white sharks because there is a very high concentration of seals. And the seals are in this alleyway with a rock on one side and a rock on the other. And they teach their young offspring to swim by taking them through this alleyway because it's a shorter swim from one rock to another. It's a short passage. It's not exhausting. But as a result of the concentration of seals and the concentration of little seals trying to swim through this passage, you can imagine that the shark population is pretty large. Uh, I don't know the statistics, but it was my understanding that it was one of the biggest concentrations of them in the world. And I wanted to get into a shark cage to see them. And as you might imagine, seeing a bunch of sharks up close while you're in freezing cold water is pretty memorable. I think I could have not written about it, and I would have remembered it just as vividly. But I might not have remembered some of the details. Like, for instance, there were seven different great whites that appeared at different times around the boat. And as I write, seeing them in person was everything I ever dreamed. Appearing large and looming, graceful and gliding out of the deep green of the sea. Sometimes they attacked straight up from below. Other times, they glided past for a closer look. The sharks were longer in length than the cage, and they were so close you could touch them. You could see the details of their skin and teeth, the nuanced movements of their fins. And the part I really loved reading was this line, this description, because I would have never thought to describe it this way. I write... The first time it, meaning the shark, the first time it smashed into the cage was one of the most exuberant moments of my life. Exuberant. I actually laughed out loud when I read that last night. I love the use of that word. I guess this is part of the uh, joy of reading back old journals is uh, seeing what word choices you made in the moment. All right. One more thing. That's it. A thing that I hope that you do along the way as you're journaling is not just recording your observations or getting the sticky thoughts out of the way so that you can go about your day or writing things like we talked about of writing. I don't feel like writing today just to get in the habit of writing so that you can actually break through to some interesting things. I think it's really important to also make note of the compliments that people give you. Not egotistically, I guess, is not what I mean. But sometimes people say things about what we do or what we take for granted, and we forget those things or we overlook them. Too many of us, I think, focus on the negativity, the negative things that people say, the things that aren't right. I really try not to do that, and I'm kind of naturally inclined not to do that, I think. But I was reading this book last night, and there was a compliment in here that I do not remember, but I'm glad I wrote it down. So a little backstory. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, I met before going to South Africa. I met him in Seattle, which I'll reference in what I'm about to read to you. 
when he visited and he appeared on the show that I produced for NPR at the time, a show called Weekday, which was hosted by Steve Scher. And I had not only gotten to know him, I had gotten to know his aide, or basically the man who traveled with him, a man named Matunzi. And people often get very wrapped up in the celebrities. I often find that, yes, somebody like Desmond Tutu is incredible, incredible to be around. But the people around these people are equally interesting people. And so I often spend time with the people that are overlooked in the frenzy to meet the famous person. And I kept in contact with Matunzi after this day. And so when I knew I was coming to South Africa, I was traveling with my father and a group of other people, including a young man named Tally. And they had a real desire to try to intersect and to meet Desmond Tutu if he was in South Africa when we were there. And I didn't know if I could arrange it, and I didn't even know if he was going to be there. Uh, but I reached out to Matunzi, and I tried to set something up. And he said that if they were in town, which he wasn't sure they would be, they would be at St. George's Cathedral on this particular day. So this is written on April 30th and includes that forgotten compliment. So Desmond Tutu and Matunzi, April 30th, 2010. We arrived late to Eucharist at St. George's Cathedral in downtown Cape Town. Desmond Tutu was indeed there as we had hoped, just in time to introduce ourselves as visitors. I made the introduction of myself and Dad, Boyd, and Tally. Communion was served to us by the former Archbishop himself. It was clear that I was not familiar with Catholic religious traditions. Matunzi was there. I quickly made contact after much prior emailing. I had met both Tutu and Matunzi when they were on weekday during the Seattle Peace Conference. Matunzi and I had hit it off. This time was no exception. Following services, we went with them to breakfast, though Friday was their fasting day. Tutu circulated the crowd in his gray sweater, blue sailor's cap, and pleasant face. Matunzi sat by my side, and we chatted about his life and how he came to be traveling the world with Tutu. Turns out, it was a family decision. Matunzi is married to Tutu's eldest daughter. After Tutu's former aide had to retire for medical reasons, Matunzi was summoned from Georgia, where he and his wife had lived for 20 years. They came back to South Africa. It was a conspiracy by the women, he tells me, Tutu's three daughters and Tutu's wife. We live on adrenaline, he says. Tutu never stops. He can't stop, so we don't. We keep going. They had just arrived home in Cape Town a week prior, and soon they were off to London. Our time was brief but good. Tally's response to my interaction with Tutu and Matunzi, he told my father I was fearless. So there you go. A compliment I would have forgotten, and... I love that I wrote out the quotes of what Matunzi actually said. I wouldn't have phrased some of that that way, and I wouldn't have remembered some of those details. So I don't know. Maybe that'll encourage your journaling, or maybe it will have you pulling out journals from the basement like I did last night and discovering things that I had forgotten. 
Either way, thank you so much for being with us today and this week, for being supporters of the show. I want to thank Lisa for her donation, her generous donation at the end of the year that is going to help us buy some new equipment. Thank you so much. And I want to thank Jessica for upping her monthly pledge over on patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. If you love the show, if it gets you thinking, I hope you will consider supporting it. Listener support is the number one reason why we can continue making the show as we do. There are links in the show notes or at thebittersweetlife.net. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. (laughs) 